Kong. And I want to welcome those of you that are logging in for the first time or maybe listening later. Uh, we're glad that you are here. I want to remind everybody, especially those of you that are watching online, to check in. You can use the Church Center app. If you're here, there's a check-in card in your growth guide. Or you can, wherever you are, text the word here to our church number, 603-225-2550. As I mentioned earlier, this is the beginning of a new series called In It Together. We're, we're going to be working through the letter to the Philippians. And the first message today is called Partners. And what we're going to be doing here is looking at the introduction to the letter. And we're going to be um, uh, kind of giving an overview, putting the letter in its setting. This is a New Testament book, but it's really a letter. It's a very personal, very warm letter written by the Apostle Paul to a congregation, a church that he founded along with some helpers in the city of Philippi. So we're going to be setting the stage for that, and you'll come away with the main idea. And the question that this is going to answer today is this. Uh, the Apostle Paul is basically reminding them, reminding the church at Philippi, when they accepted the gospel, they were declaring their allegiance, their ultimate allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King and Savior. And that is the question, that's the context, and that's also the question that uh, we're going to be faced with today. Because uh, whatever your background, whatever your nationality, there's something that you're going to give your ultimate allegiance to. And for a follower of Jesus, that one, that who, is supposed to be Jesus. So we're going to be talking about allegiance, really, today. And the bottom line of this whole book, and to kind of set the stage, is this. The Apostle Paul encourages the church at Philippi to be citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven worthy of the gospel of Christ. And let me give you a little bit of background as to what that means and the people that he's speaking to and how they would have heard it. The format of today's message is going to be a little bit different because it's kind of in three movements rather than three points. The first one, I'm going to give you the story, kind of the background to the book of uh, Philippians. And then we're going to look at the major themes in the introduction and Thanksgiving section and prayer section of the book. The Apostle Paul will introduce a lot of the themes, as is his habit, that he'll be coming back to later. The things that are on his mind just come out in this session of Thanksgiving and prayer. And then we'll focus in on the main idea, that bottom line, what I think is the centerpiece of the letter to the Philippians. So let's set the stage by my telling you a story. Uh, many of you will have no doubt studied Julius Caesar, the, the play by Shakespeare in high school or school at some point or read it on your own. So you would know from that, from history, that on the Ides of March, the 15th of March, and let me just make sure I've got the date right. There's a little summary of this in here as well. In 44 
BCE, before the Common Era, BCE, they, uh, senators came to the forum and murdered Julius Caesar. Now, the motivation was they were concerned that this Caesar, that he was going to become too powerful. And they were concerned that he would destroy the Roman Republic and that there would be a tyranny put in place. And so they struggled with it, but they decided it would be better to go ahead and kill him ahead of time rather than wait for a tyranny to be put in place. So that's what happens. And then there's a little bit of a power struggle going on. You have the, the, um, the assassins led by Brutus of Et Tu Brute uh, fame and also Cassius. And then on the other side, you had Octavius, who was the great grandnephew of Julius Caesar and his designated successor, plus Mark Anthony, of uh, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him fame, on the other side. Now, this battle and this power struggle continued for several years, and eventually there was a battle on the plains of Greece, and the forces of Brutus and Cassius came up against the forces of Octavius and Mark Anthony, and the assassins and their uh, army was defeated, and Octavius and Mark Anthony solidified their power. Now, as kind of a reward and as a way of alleviating the population concerns in Rome and also establishing a stronghold in Greece, what Octavius did was give basically the city of the nearby city of Philippi as a reward to those who had fought. They were given Roman citizenship with all of its rights and privileges and a place to live. So they went and they settled there. A little bit later, the power struggle continues. Now Mark Anthony and Octavius are on opposite sides, and there's another battle uh, a sea battle on the other side of Greece in 30 BC where Octavius defeats Mark Anthony and solidifies his power. And then he does the same thing. He takes the veterans from that war that fought with him and places them in Philippi as a reward, Roman citizenship, Roman colony. So uh, this city had the characteristics that were related to that. It was very patriotic. It was full of, of war veterans. Uh, and even though by the time the Apostle Paul shows up, it's much, much later, there was still that sense that this is a Roman colony, and there was a lot of pride in that. There was a lot of privilege associated with that. There was a history. You know, If you met somebody on the street, it's likely that your grandfather or great-grandfather and their great-grandfather or grandfather had fought together either on the plains nearby or in the sea on the other side of Greece. So there was a strong sense of family, and also a strong sense of patriotism and, and, um, and allegiance to the Roman government, and in particular, the Roman Caesar. By this time, it was decided that Octavius, who became Augustus, Caesar Augustus, 
was considered divine. He was given the title, the Son of God. He was the, the divine representative of God on the earth as far as they were concerned. He was also called Savior because from the time of Julius Caesar, the Caesars would sometimes be regarded as saviors or redeemers because they would rescue and protect their people. And the idea of a Lord was sometimes applied to the Caesars, but it basically just meant master. If there was a slave, that slave had a master or a Lord. And some uh, Caesars liked to be called Lord, some didn't. They felt like it was almost like pandering to them. But all of these different titles, Son of God, Savior, Lord, Caesar, king, which means king, uh, we could associate with king. All these were associated with, the, with that leader of the Roman Republic and later empire. And the people of Philippi were closely associated, uh, indebted. And by this time, the idea of worshiping, worshiping the emperor had been introduced. And so it wasn't just their political affiliation, it was their religious affiliation as well, because you can oppose a politician, but if somebody is the divine representative, God's man on earth, then you can't oppose that, because that would be opposing God. So it's into this setting. A little bit later, of course, Jesus is born, lives, dies, goes to the cross, resurrected, ascends into heaven. A couple of years later, he appears to a Pharisee, a young Pharisee who was opposing the church and persecuting the church named Saul. He, Saul, obviously became the Apostle Paul, embraced Christianity, embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then started going around the known world of his day in order to establish churches and spread the message. To give you a picture of what we're talking about, this is just uh, a map of the eastern, eastern Mediterranean. So you've got Rome up here in the top corner. You've got Jerusalem and Israel down here. This is a modern map, but it's still pretty much the same as it was 2,000 years ago, just the names have changed. Uh, and then this is modern-day Turkey, which at that time was Asia Minor, so places like Ephesus and Colossae are in there. So the Apostle Paul went up around here, and then this is the Aegean Sea, and you've got Athens here, Corinth is right there, Thessalonica is still called Thessalonica, and it's right there. And there's a little spot called Kavala, which was the port that fed into Philippi, which is about 10 to 12 miles inland. So the Apostle Paul is going around planting churches in, modern, in what is now modern-day Turkey. And for some reason, we don't know why, but he feels like he's being hindered. So uh, they try to go to one place, it doesn't work out. They try to go to another place, it doesn't work out. So as he's sleeping one night, he has a dream. And in this dream, a man from Macedonia, and that's what this section in the northern coast of the Aegean Sea was called, there's this man and he says, come over here, come to Macedonia and help us. So he takes out as a sign that all of these barriers that they've been encountered, they're supposed to leave that area and they're supposed to go to Macedonia. So they go up there and they establish a church in Philippi. Now, 
usually their habit was that they would go to the local synagogue because you know they kind of had the background that they could understand the message of Jesus, and that's where they would start before going on to the Gentile population. Well, in Philippi, this Roman colony, there weren't even enough men. You had to have 10 Jewish men in order to form a synagogue, and in the whole city, they couldn't gather together 10 men. So the people who were Jewish or who were what were called God-fearers that would join in the worship of Israel's God would meet down by a river because they didn't have a synagogue. And so that's where the Apostle Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy and the doctor Luke, would join in this worship and they began to talk about Jesus. Well, the message takes hold and they get some converts and the church begins. They encounter some various opposition, and uh, most of the crew ends up leaving, although we think that Dr. Luke stayed around for a little while. And they continue to travel around and make their missionary journeys. We think that the, from the letters to the Corinthian church, we think that the Apostle Paul made at least a couple of different visits back to Colossae, or I'm sorry, to Philippi. And, uh, but at some point, because of his preaching the gospel and the opposition that he encountered, he finds himself in prison. The church at Philippi hears about this, and so they send one of their own member, Epaphroditus, with a financial gift to help support him and to encourage him, I imagine, and give him an update on what's going on at Philippi. So Epaphroditus travels to uh, to where Paul is in prison, meets with him, gives him the gift, becomes deathly ill, almost dies, but recovers. And when he recovers, Paul decides, I really need to send you back home. So he sends him back home and writes a letter to the church at Philippi to go back to the church with Epaphroditus. And that's the letter that we have in our New Testaments today, 2,000 years later, called the letter to the Philippians. Now, that's the story. What I want to do is introduce to you some of the themes that we will see throughout the letter as we look at it, and then show you the bottom line, what I think is kind of the main organizing principle, the bottom line that the Apostle Paul wanted to communicate to the church, and we'll see how it applies to us. And if I were to say, you know, if I were to distill it down to what I think is the core, the essence of what the Apostle Paul wanted to communicate to the church, I think it would be this. And, and this is the, not the bottom line, but the application. And that is to settle your citizenship. He's writing to people who understandably take a lot of pride and get a lot of privilege from their Roman citizenship, but that Roman citizenship and the people around them are also causing a little bit of problem and opposition to the gospel because, as you can probably pick up on what I said, a lot of their culture was embracing Caesar as king, as lord, as savior, as God. And so when the Apostle Paul and his companions and then the church that takes root there starts proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King of kings, Jesus as Savior, then that understandably caused a little bit of opposition. And so he's saying, you know, you are citizens in Philippi of a Roman colony. You are Roman citizens. 
but there's a more important citizenship, a greater allegiance that you have as a follower of Jesus, as a part of God's family, and as citizens of heaven. So make sure that you settle your citizenship, and there's no, no ambiguity, no question about who your ultimate allegiance belongs to. So that's the setting, and that's the application that we'll talk about. So let's look at the beginning of this letter. This is the, the greeting, the salutation, and the thanksgiving and prayer section, which is how the letter to the Philippians begins. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, verses 1 through 11. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, I'm reminded by that last phrase about bringing glory and praise to you, that that's our ultimate aim. We talk about uh, how following Jesus makes life better and makes you better at life, but the ultimate aim of that is when we do that, it brings glory. It gives you credit for the good things that you do, for the wisdom that you share with us. So Lord, I pray that as a result of what we do here this morning, that you will receive the credit, the glory and honor that is due your name. Speak to each one of us, we pray. We know that you are living and active and your word is living and active. So show us in our hearts what we need to hear and also what we need to do with what we hear today. Speak by the power of your spirit. Give us ears to hear hearts open, and feet ready to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so now 
having, having heard that and having heard the story behind it, you will now read and hear the scriptures in a way that you wouldn't before because you have the context for that. So even at the very beginning, we're looking at two parts of a letter. If you look at your printer, you know, your computer printer at home, a lot of times it'll have a little icon and it'll look like a little letter, right? Have you seen that? Or sometimes it'll look like a little envelope. It doesn't say envelope or letter. It just shows you a picture and you recognize it as such because they have a certain form. And so if you see a short line at the top and then a couple of paragraphs and then another short line at the bottom, you know that's a letter because that's the format in which we write letters. Well, in a similar way, in the ancient world, they had a format to the way that they would write letters. And it would begin with a salutation, which not only identified the recipient, but also the author of the letter. We put the recipient at the top and the author at the bottom. They put them right up front at the beginning, which kind to make sense if you think about it. And then there was some kind of greeting and wishing for the health and well-being of the recipient. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's writing a personal letter. So he follows that pattern to a certain extent. But you'll also notice a difference, some things that are different and stand out. And both the similarities and the differences teach us something about what he is trying to accomplish. So it starts out, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. So he puts himself in a place of a slave, of a servant. And he says, we are slaves of Christ Jesus. And think about, in light of what we were saying about the story, in light of the idea of Lord, he's saying, we, we are servants. And we have a Lord, but our Lord is Christ Jesus. He says, I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi. Now, holy people is sometimes translated saints because that's the word. It means the holy ones, the saints. Now, depending on your uh, tradition that you are familiar with, you might think of saints as these super holy people that are recognized as such long after their death. But in the New Testament, saints is just an appellation for everyone who is a follower of Jesus. Because you have said yes to Jesus, he has sanctified you or made you holy. And as a result, it was common for them to refer to one another as saints. It's not based on your performance. It's based on what Christ has done for you and does in you. He's writing to the people at Philippi. So now we have a sense of who the Philippians were and what their background was. And he says they belong to Christ Jesus. There was a very real sense in which as Roman citizens and as uh, former worshipers of the divine emperor that they belong to somebody else. But now he's saying their allegiance has shifted and now you belong to a different king. You belong to Christ Jesus. He says, including the church leaders and deacons. Now that says literally overseers and deacons. And these are two words that refer to the the basic categories of church leaders at that time. Uh, Sometimes overseers would be called elders and sometimes pastors. Uh, Deacons, in some traditions, that's a very uh, specific designation. It means something very specific. Here, you can just kind of hear that in our setting as pastors and team leaders, church leaders and team leaders. That's the idea of church leaders or overseers and deacons. 
And then he says, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. This is a very early letter, certainly within the first century, probably uh, around the middle of the first century. And you already see this identification of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if anybody comes along and says to you, oh, they didn't really believe that Jesus was God, that he was divine, that is foolishness. We have early attestation that they understood Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. Remember I said that there are similarities and differences to the letter. The common greeting was just something that we would translate as greetings. It was literally the infinitive to rejoice. But it sounds very similar to another word, the word that we translate as grace. So what the Apostle Paul has done is he's kind of done a little uh, a little riff on the common greeting. See if you can hear it. The common greeting was kairine. That means just greetings. Here he says charis, charis, kairine, charis. Charis is the word for grace. And so he's adapting it. He's saying where I would usually give you greetings, I'm going to remind you that you are recipients of grace. And then he adds the traditional Jewish greeting as well, shalom or peace. Grace to you and peace from, our, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the introduction. Then it was very common to wish the recipients good health or blessings. And very often in that spot in the letter, the Apostle Paul will give thanks to God and offer a prayer. And this will be very helpful as you read through the New Testament. Whenever you see this introductory prayer or thanksgiving section, it's often a clue to what the letter is about. And if you read carefully and pay attention, the themes that show up in that part of the letter will often show up later. For example, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, he talks about their giftedness, that they are very well gifted. They have lots of spiritual gifts. And then later in the letter, he comes back to that. And one of the largest sections in the New Testament dealing with spiritual gifts is in 1 Corinthians. So the same kind of thing happens here as well. And if you're taking notes, this is where we'll write down some of the themes. He starts out, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. This is sometimes a Thanksgiving section. Then he goes on and says, whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. Sometimes it's a prayer section. In this instance, it's kind of a mixture of giving thanks and offering prayers. And here is the first indication of the theme. He's saying, whenever I think of you, I'm giving thanks. And whenever I pray for you, it fills me with joy. And that's the first major theme that we encounter is this theme of joy. Sometimes the book of Philippians is called the letter of joy. There's a commentary, uh, a famous commentary by Warren Wiersbe on the book, and it's just called Be Joyful. Over and over again, this idea of joy or rejoicing comes up. The best definition, the definition I like best that I've heard of joy is this. It's the overriding confidence that all will be well because we know the end of the story and that confidence allows us to enjoy 
the journey. Sometimes people make a distinction between happiness and joy. Happiness is based on your circumstances, and joy is based on something deeper than that. And I think uh, the, what this definition pulls out and that I really like about it, it's like whatever your circumstances, whatever you're facing, whatever is going on, if you're a follower of Jesus, all will be well. We know the end of the story. We know who wins, and we know that we're on the winning side. Yes. Now, this does not, does not diminish the pain and suffering, the very real evil that we may encounter, but it does put it in context. And the context is Jesus wins, Jesus rules, Jesus will reign. And so if you have that confidence, then you can enjoy the journey because you know that whatever you face, if it's evil, it's temporary, and the good will prevail in the end. Another theme that this brings up is the idea of partnership. He goes on to say in verse 5, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. If you didn't catch that, I define partnership as shared participation. If you've been around church for a little while, you may have heard of the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia is often translated as fellowship or partnership, and that's the word that we encounter in this verse for partners. And what he's saying, and this uh, he, he's pointing out, highlighting here, that from the very beginning, he brought the good news, the story of Jesus, to the Philippians. And from that point on, they've been actively spreading it. They've been participating in that ministry. So um, he, it, it includes this idea of working together, but it's much greater than that. It's drawing a big circle and saying, look, we are in this together this is a key part of the theme of the book of Philippians. He's saying we are sharing in, we're participating in the ministry of sharing the gospel. We're doing that because we are participants in and shares in the good news, the gospel of Jesus to begin with. And you have been my partner in that. The Apostle Paul had dedicated his whole life to getting the message of Jesus out to people that hadn't heard it. So for him to encounter a people that were similarly dedicated and similarly, in, similarly engaged and similarly committed to that ministry was a great encouragement to him. And what he uh, what he's saying is you're, you're partners because we share in this. We share in the benefits of the gospel, the grace of God, that we are included in the story of Christ, and now we're included in getting that message out. We are partners, and I'm so thankful and so grateful for your partnership in the gospel from the very beginning. And the other theme that this brings up is the gospel itself. It is the good news. Some of your translations will say gospel. Some will say good news. That's the Greek word euangelion, which when, uh, to put that in context, I didn't mention this, but remember those battles that we were talking about, the battle of Philippi, the battle of Actium. When a battle was won, they would publish the news. They would send out a bulletin saying, we won, our king was victorious. 
that bulletin was called a euangelion, a proclamation of good news. The Christian believers picked up that idea and said, we've got a new king and he is victorious. This is the story, the good news, the euangelion, the proclamation of his victory, and we want to share it with everybody. I highlight the idea of what this means, the good news about Jesus Christ in this way. It's who he is, what he's done, and what it means for us. Those are the three elements of the gospel that I often use. Who he is, Jesus was and is fully God and fully human, a, a, uh, an, a completely human and completely divine man. That's who he is. As a result of that, he was perfect. He never sinned. And what he has done is lived a perfect life and then went to the cross, died a death on a cross that he did not deserve in order that what it means for us we could receive the grace and forgiveness that we could never earn. So that's my shorthand for the good news, the gospel. It's who Jesus is, his identity, what he has done, his work, and then what it means for us. And so every week I allow and encourage, I, I allow for the time for you to say yes to Jesus. And that's what we're talking about here. When you receive the good news, what you're doing is saying, I want what Jesus did on the cross to count for me. And from this point on, he is my Lord. He is my master. He's the boss. He gets to call the shots. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And that's what saying yes is. Now it goes on. Another theme shows up. And another aspect of the book of Philippians is it's full of verses worth memorizing and verses that you will have heard before and verses that you will see on various wall hangings at Hobby Lobby. There are lots of different great verses in this, one, in this book, and this is the first one. It's Philippians 1.6, which says, And I am certain that God, who began the good work in you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus returns. This is great news. It's the confidence that you can't come to God on your own. The, the idea that you want to follow Jesus is evidence of God's work in your life. And when you say yes to Jesus, he is committed to you for the long haul. What he starts, he will finish. And you can have that confidence as well. And the theme that this highlights that you'll see throughout the book is the theme of progress. And there are two aspects to this. There's the spread of the gospel. The gospel is progressing. It's reaching other people. And the maturity of the saints that as they have started on this journey, they're going to continue on this journey and maturity is their end goal. So he goes on to say, so it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you. You have a special place in my heart. I didn't put this in the themes, but maybe you can just kind of remember, this is a very personal and warm letter, and that warmth comes out in a variety of different ways. He says, you share with me, there's that idea of participation, of koinonia again, the special favor, that's their translation of the word grace, of God both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. And this, in, this introduces another of the themes. It is the theme of suffering. 
You see what he's saying there is God has given, he has poured out his grace upon us. And so you share in that grace. And, but it's interesting. We think of grace as gifts. as We, we think of grace as a show associated with good things. But he's saying you are sharing in the grace of God, and that includes my imprisonment and my mission, defending and confirming the truth of the good news. The theme of suffering shows up throughout this book. It's written by an apostle who is imprisoned because of his proclaiming the gospel to a people who are swimming against the current of their culture. The suffering that they are encountering or the difficulties that just naturally arise from opposition to the gospel. And if you think about it in context, here are people who owe their privileges to the state and he is coming in and saying, there's another allegiance, a more important allegiance, and you deserve your ultimate, you, des- you, you should give your ultimate allegiance to the one who deserves it most, the Lord Jesus Christ. So difficulty and opposition is going to arise, and it deals with that. So he goes on and he says, and this is my prayer. And I just want to pick out some of the verbs, this is what is highlighted in there, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He wants their love for one another to abound so that you may be able to discern what is best. He wants love with discernment, not just, not just touchy-feely, not just whatever comes along, but to be discerning in their affections. Uh, to be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, in this section is another theme that I didn't highlight there, but you will see it from time to time. He talks about the day of Christ. There's always this pointing to that the goal, the, the end game, the end result is that Jesus is going to return, that he's going to be victorious, and any other allegiances are going to fall short. So he reminds them of that along the way, but he says the end game is to the glory and praise of God. In other words, we're on the winning side. Jesus is going to return. Jesus is going to set things right, and your allegiance should be with him. And as a result of that, it's God that is going to get the credit. Sometimes the idea of glory is presence. When we talk about Jesus as the glory of God, we're talking about him as the presence of God made manifest. Sometimes glory has to do with credit. Who gets, who gets the glory? Who gets the credit for what's going on? And to the praise of God. You say the end game, the end result of all of this is that God is going to be glorified. Jesus is going to get the credit and you are on the winning side. So this is the last thing that I'll highlight. It's the idea of credit. Who and what really matters? Who and what really matters? Then after this section, as he gets into talking about the, uh, it gets into the core of the letter, there is one particular verse. I've given you the background, the story. I've highlighted some of the themes, and this is focusing in on the bottom line the big idea of this letter. He introduces this phrase, it's Philippians 1.27a, the first half of the verse, with above all, literally only. In other words, 
if you don't listen, if you don't hear anything else, if you don't get anything out of this, just remember and keep this idea front and center. Only, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. In other words, great, you're in a Roman colony. Great, you have all the privileges and, and, and rights associated with Roman citizenship. But you got to remember that your ultimate allegiance, your ultimate citizenship is not in Rome, not in Philippi, not on earth. It, you are a citizen of heaven. And your allegiance, your ultimate allegiance has shifted. Conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. In other words, what does it mean to live as a citizen of heaven? It means that you're going to live, you're going to conduct yourselves in a way that is in accordance with, that's going to give credit to the good news, something that is worthy of the good news about Christ. So I think that's the organizing principle of the entire letter. Why do we rejoice? Why is this so full of joy? Because you're a citizen of heaven. And as tough as things are right now, as much opposition as you may encounter, you're on the winning side. You've chosen well with your allegiance. You, uh, there was the idea of working towards the benefit of your city. Well, you've got a city that was not made with human hands. You belong to a heavenly kingdom. And so you're going to conduct yourself. You're going to be ambassadors of that kingdom in a way that is worthy of the victorious announcement, the good news about Christ Jesus. So I think the bottom line of the whole book is this, to be citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in a world that is pushing against a world that is going to challenge your ultimate allegiance, a world that is going to have different allegiances and therefore provide a lot of opposition. We each have to settle this question, to what or whom will you give your ultimate allegiance? Yeah, we're going to be good citizens. We're going to do our civic duty. But ultimately, our allegiance is to the one who makes us right with God and works in us a righteousness that we could have not obtain on our own. Our allegiance is to our heavenly king and to our heavenly citizenship. So if there's any question about that, settle that once and for all right now. Settle your citizenship. And then I'll give you one other application. A big part of the theme of this whole thing is that we are in this together, that not only do, because of what Jesus did, do you enter into a new relationship with your heavenly Father, God, through Jesus Christ, but as a result of that, you are placed in a family of brothers and sisters. You have, you're a part of the family of God. You are citizens in the kingdom of God. And so a big part of this is the partnership, the koinonia, the fellowship that we share with one another. And so the way that that's lived out in our context is by partnering together in participating membership. And if you flip the growth guide to the last page, you'll see this and you'll see the link. This is our time of year where we receive new members, but also renew existing members. So the invitation is, since we belong to Christ, let's make sure that we abound in love for one another as well. And you can follow that link to learn a little bit more about what it means to be a participating member 
at Cornerstone as well. The joy that we have is that we've heard the good news of Jesus, that we have a new king, that he's a victorious king, that his rule and reign is going to last forever, that he's brought us into the family of God, placed us in the kingdom of God, and partnered us with, joined us with one another in that fellowship of the forgiven and given us a mission to accomplish in the here and now. Let's join together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God, and we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that as we study this, that you will pull us closer and closer to you and help us to recognize the benefits and grace that we have as a result of being included in the gospel and help us to be uh, committed to one another, partnering with one another, locking arms, supporting, encouraging, and loving one another the way that you intended because you've made us a part of your family and citizens in your kingdom. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Have a great week.